Hello folks, Matthew Garnett here with In Layman's Terms. This week, as promised, we are going to get into Dr. Mays' paper from this year's Concordia Seminary Fort Wayne Symposia, where he talks about the historicity of Genesis 1 through 3, why that's essential, especially as, as Christians, why it's virtually impossible to maintain a proper Christology if we don't take Genesis 1 through 3 as history, and we'll get kind of into the details of all that. Dr. Mays juxtaposes the historical account that we have in Genesis 3 against uh, one of our own Lutheran uh, theologians named Herman Zaza, and we'll, he com- kind of compares and contrasts Zaza's take on that and him trying to fit things in. Really, what I want to drive at here is in keeping with our discussion on morality and do we need God for morality and that sort of thing is really how worldview drives uh, how you analyze data. So if you've got a a Christian worldview, the way you're going to look at a piece of data is going to be different than how you look at a piece of data if you are self-proclaimed atheist. In other words, you may look at how animals adapt to their environments throughout time and say, well, that happened in a, in a macro way. And that's really how we came, uh, came to be as human beings. As Christians, we're going to come at that from a, from a different worldview. We're going to look at that piece of data and say, no, that can't possibly be the case because we have commit other commitments to other heuristics, in other words, those things that we use to find out what's true and false, our, our uh, epistemological heuristics come into play there. And as an atheist, you're going to take a piece of data and analyze it completely differently than you would as a Christian. And one is right and one is wrong. That is, that's completely true. But don't let everybody, don't ever let anybody tell you that, uh, Oh, you're just you're just biased. You're a Christian, so you're going to be biased toward the Christian worldview. Yes, that's absolutely true. You you want to admit to that claim every time it's it's charged to you because the same is true for the atheists. They are going to analyze data in a biased way. And again, that doesn't mean that there's no correct way to view the data. There is a co- correct way to view it. The question is, who's correct? And so that's why the, that's where the proofs for God and you know really digging down to first principles is important because at the end of the day, the Christians have uh, an omniscient, omnipresent, om, omnipresent, um, omnipotent being who was made from nothing, who is not contingent, as we talked about last week. If you want to know what contingency is, philosophically speaking, go back and listen to to last week's podcast, but essentially, it's this idea. Producer Isaac is contingent on me. I produced him, in a manner of speaking. My dad produced me. My grandfather produced him, and on down the line, so it goes. And eventually, you get to the first person, shall we say, or if you're an evolutionist, the first molecule. Where did that come from? Who produced that? So even if you buy into evolution, you still have to address that question of where did the first Stuff the first material come from that we evolved out of it into human beings from. And where did the stuff that made the Big Bang come from? Exactly. Bruce Isaac just said, where did the stuff, the Big Bang, that made the Big Bang happen, where did that come from? You, that's a question you have to, to have to answer. 
And if you answer it like some scientists will, they will, with a straight face, sit there and tell you that the universe came from nothing. It just happened. We can't explain it. All right? That's that's the exact same thing as me saying, and hear me out on this. I mean, I've said this several times, but I really want to drive this point home. That's the exact same thing as me saying that ultimately producer Isaac came from nothing. We would never use that explanation to explain anything else. We would always explain it in terms of contingencies. And again, like I said last week, where we get, get caught up is God is a non-contingent being. And we have, our, we have a really hard time getting our minds around that because everything else we explain, we explain in terms of contingency. And in, in order to explain everything, in order to explain where the universe came from, we have to have a non-contingent being. You have to have God, a specific God who has specific qualities. So again, like I like to tease some of my atheist friends, I'm like, that's fine. The universe came from nothing. So long as your nothing is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present, we're good to go. And etern- you know, eternally so. And that's really the term we've used as English speakers here in the West to describe that reality is God. So, atheists are crazy too. They have crazy explanations for things, like where did the universe come from? It came from nothing. All this, all this complexity, all that there is in existence came out of nothing. We have a better explanation, I think. So, while we might seem crazy on some scores, atheists are going to seem crazy on other scores. All that to say is, when we interpret data from different worldviews, it's going to be interpreted differently. One is right and one is wrong. I am absolutely convinced that the Christian worldview is the correct worldview from which to proceed. It's going to lead you to reality more often than it doesn't. And so that kind of brings me to to a point that I like to make speaking about apologetics just more broadly is that's why I pretty much adhere to what is called the presuppositional approach to apologetics. That's anytime I'm trying to uh, share the gospel with someone, ultimately. A lot of times where I have to start is why the Christian worldview. I, I, have to identi- I have to identify their worldview. They have to come to grips with what their presuppositions are and how they're interpreting data and see that, oh, I see, because I'm coming from this position, I'm interpreting this piece of data that way. They have to. That's one big thing that a lot of folks have to come to grips with is they are interpreting data from the point of view of their worldview and if their worldview is wrong, they're going to misinterpret the data. And that's, you know, and again, that can get dicey too, because then they say, well, how can you say, how can you determine which worldview is right? Well, that's, that's a big question. That's a really important question and a really fun discussion to have if you can get to that point with folks. They can say, well, you're Christian. How do you know your Christian worldview is correct? Ah, now we're in business. Now we can discuss all kinds of things like, um, Aquinas and the unmoved mover and, and contingency and these sorts of things talk about uh, philosophy and and really ultimately what got this whole thing started and then once you know once you get to okay there might be a God thing you know then you're kind of off and running uh, but the point is uh, data is data so like people a lot of people like to say the science says blah 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 the science doesn't say anything the science presents data. Human beings interpret that data and say, this is what we should or shouldn't do. It's that, again, that's old, it's that old Hume is ought question. We can't get to ought from is. And, and Hume was an atheist. He was an honest one. And that's really the point. Most of the early um, uh, atheist 
Nihilists like Nietzsche, for instance, Hume, several others, they were at least honest to say that if there is no God, and Nietzsche was convinced there wasn't, then we got a major problem because now we have to come up with our own meaning, and that is going to cause, again, the streets to run wet, red with blood. You know, God is dead and we have killed him. I've quoted this many times, one of my favorite quotes in all of philosophy. God is dead and we have killed him. How shall we wipe the blood from our hands? Uh, you know, how, how are we going to solve this problem? How are we, are we going to have to become gods? Essentially, the answer is yes. And that is a very dangerous and difficult position. That's why Nietzsche uh, posited the Superman, the, the Ubermensch, right? For you German speakers out there, um, of which I am not one. I just happen to know that phrase. But the point being, the science doesn't say anything. Facts don't say anything. Human beings take those facts and interpret them into what we ought to do. Those facts can lead us in a certain direction or show us well, really, that's even the wrong language. They don't lead us. They don't show us. They are just, it's data. Science is data. And then scientists who are human beings trained to grapple with the data, discover the data, present it to people who make decisions about what we should do with that data. So a great example of this right now in our day and time is, the, is, our, is our worldwide black plague that we've got going on right now. It's interesting how... Notice how involved a lot of the scientists are in the policy making. That's a, that's a major error in logic, and and in and in really specialized expertise. So, take anybody from the government cadre of scientists, anyone you want to pick, the one that's on TV the most, whoever the you know whatever head of whatever department you want to take. That person's job and their group's job is to give us information, and then. We elect people to take that information and make decisions about it. Right now, that's not going on very well, see? Um, and so, so when somebody tells you to follow the science or somebody says they're following the science, that's just not true. What, and give them a little, you know, credit, wiggle room with that. Because what they really mean by that is this set of scientific facts that I have read about, discovered, whatever the case may be, I am making an informed opinion about what should be done based on those facts. That's what they mean when they say follow the science. I get it, but they're not really following this infallible, um, uh, incontrovertible, all-knowing discipline that tells us what we should do at all times. Science doesn't do that. That is not the job of science, in fact. And people should know this. So anyway, there's my little rant about science. The point being that we are with the idea of getting back to God as the unmoved mover, as the first principle, as the first thing, as the non-contingent being, as the pure formal cause of the universe. These things all come into play, and they really come into play with something like the historicity of Genesis 1-3, through which Dr. Mays points out brilliantly. I couldn't have, couldn't have done a better job of it myself. He, he really gave a great lecture. I'm only going to cover a brief portion of it. If you want to see it, you have to pay money. And yeah, you go to the seminary website. You actually just do a search for uh, Concordia Theological Seminary Fort Wayne Symposia. 
it'll take you to a page at you pay 20 bucks and you get to see all the symposia lectures. There's a, there's a tons of great lectures on there. It's, you know, several of my church mates, including Dr. Mays, uh, Dr. Adam Kuntz gave a, a great lecture on, on human fertility. Uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Gifford Grobean gave an excellent lecture on, um, the, uh, geez, what was that? It seems like the hypostatic union, um, uh, the presence of Christ as, you know, kind of a unifying uh, theme in Scripture. I can't remember the exact title. I'm trying to the exact title of it. To, it's technical. <laughs> so anyway, good, all, like, good lectures all throughout the symposium to check out. But definitely check out Dr. Mazes. He's, he's spot on with it. Uh, with his, he's using, again, Herman Zaza as, as a foil to, to discuss these things and, um, and kind of going from there to talk about why it's important that we as Christians have uh, an historical understanding of Genesis 1 through 3 and what kind of theological problems it causes, right? Because again, that's what we were originally talking about in the sense of uh, epistemological heuristics. How do we find out what we can know? How do we discover what's knowable? And one of the ways we can know something is through theology, that's, that's the claim I'm going to make really throughout these couple of podcasts or these several podcasts we've been doing so far on, on morality and God and apologetics and that sort of thing is we can know something through theology. We can understand reality by understanding theology. This is why we study it so rigorously. This is the main reason I do the podcast. Not, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that a few of you have come along with me on this on this journey, but uh, for for the most part, I do this podcast to keep myself sharp on these areas, so I can continue to sk- study theology because that is the ultimate way of knowing. It used to be known as the queen of of the sciences, and unfortunately, we've kind of lost that. But we as Christians should not lose that. And what Dr. Mays is going to show us is that as Christians, theology should be front and center, central. It should it should always trump science. We should always look at the theological facts. And allow them to have magisterial or preeminence. They should be the first thing we should look at before we look at the science. We should always doubt the science when it's against the theology, or seemingly so. And w- what we find is is that there's a whole well field of study out there of folks who are committed Christians, like Dr. Mays and a couple others who we're going to feature here, uh, Dr. Jason Lyle and Dr. Stephen Meyer, both respected scientists who are Christians, who take their theology seriously and saw it in some ways bumping up against scientific fact and said, hmm, that's that's interesting. I know the theology is correct. I know what I see in Holy Scripture is true. But the science seems to, the scientific data is seemingly contradicting what I see in Holy Scripture. Well, what are we going to go study? Of course, we're going to study our theology more. We're going to have that rock solid but why not go study science? That's what Dr. Meyer and Dr. Lyle did. Dr. Lyle is an astrophysicist. Uh, Dr. Meyer is, um, I think, his de- degree or his, his PhD is in historical, the, the history of science of some sort. Um, uh, oh, scientific philosophy. That's what it's in. Uh, and so they went and hey, let's go study the science some more and see where it might be making some mistakes or so it has some flaws in its conclusions and so on and so forth. Yeah. So that's, that's what we're going to look at today, and I want to get started right away with uh, Dr. Mays, and then I'll reintroduce Armin Zasa again. I, I've read some stuff 
from, uh, from one of our, theolo- our current theologians on him uh, that I want to bring back up and just talk about why he's revered in the LCMS. And then Dr. Mays is going to talk. You're going to see he's going to talk about why we shouldn't revere him quite so much. Anyway, let's go ahead with Dr. Mays. And falls. The last section of this chapter on the primeval revelation is section F, named Suputatio Anorum Mundi, Calculation of the Years of the World, which is the title of a chronology by Luther that Luther made, where he dates the beginning of creation really just a few thousand years ago. I can't remember the exact date. But in this section, Zasa criticizes Luther's chronology stating that the attempt to figure out the age of the world from biblical chronology and genealogies is impossible. He posits evolutionary development of mankind and that at some point in his evolution, God first spoke to man. So just a little bit about uh, Herman Zasa. Again, this is from an article that John Pless wrote for the Lutheran Witness. And I'll just read a couple of paragraphs of that. It says, Zasa was a staunch Lutheran, uncompromisingly committed to the Book of Concord. He found in the Lutheran Confession sufficient reasons for speaking against National Socialism, the Nazis. The Lutheran teaching of the two realms or two kingdoms did not lead Zasa to, to quietism or withdrawal, but was the very framework by which he diagnosed Hitler's perverted claims as idolatry, to be resisted for the sake of confession that Jesus is Lord. Much of Zasa's attention was devoted to the Lord's Supper. This is speaking more of his Lutheran theology. For Christ's body and blood are at the heart of the church's life. Where the presence of Christ's body and blood is denied and the supper set aside, the gospel is polluted and the very life of the church is endangered. That's straight down the middle Lutheran understanding of uh, of the Lord's Supper. We, I, I tease people about this, but I'm half teasing, half not. In our day and time, we seem to be a little softer. So the back in the day, those theologians usually went, went for the throat. And Pless is definitely going for the throat here. Of course, he's writing for a Lutheran publication. Uh, but he is going after all of you who deny the, the real presence of Christ in the supper. He's saying you are polluting the gospel. <laughs> it's a harsh accusation. Anyway, as a church historian, Zasa could examine current trends in the light of the church's past. Zasa recognized that the theologian should not only teach, but also call the church to repent and to return to the Holy Scriptures. Zasa reclaimed great theological truths from Luther, not just because they were from the Reformer, but because they were the truth from the Holy Scriptures. Again, we are Luther. Luther Lutheran is a slur, actually. That's what the, the papists, that's a slur from us. The papists, the Roman Catholic Church used to call the the early reformers, they started calling them Lutherans as a slur because we followed Luther. And that's again what it is. We'll, we've accepted the, the slur. We've we called ourselves we've called ourselves Lutherans, but we don't follow everything Luther teaches. We only follow what Luther taught that is in accord with Holy Scripture. So you can't pull out, well, what about on the Jews and their lies? Yeah, that's a bunch of garbage, a bunch of racist garbage that, that Luther wrote. And he was wrong about that. Uh, he was Luther was wrong about a lot of things, but he was right about other things. Okay, that's a whole other debate we'll get in another day. Uh, let me uh, continue on here. He sharpened and accentuated and accented such themes as the theology of the cross, 
noting that everything the church does must be filtered through the cross lest we fall prey to a theology of glory that rests on the wisdom of human beings rather than the wisdom of Christ. All right, so that's a little bit about Zaza. So he's a revered figure among us Lutherans, and mainly he is, he is revered uh, because he was a uh, contemporary of Bonhoeffer, who was no, noted a noted Lutheran for resisting the Nazi movement. And that's these are the couple of guys we really point to to say we weren't we weren't Nazis. <laughs> we the Lutheran Church resisted this and resisted it vehemently. And and we don't get that accusation thrown at us very often because the Lutheran Church was very strong in resisting the national national socialist movement, which Zasa should be commended for. So uh, we're not here to smear Zasa in that sense. We are here to say, just like Luther, he can be wrong on some things. And because he was correct uh, about and he and Bonhoeffer and, and the other Lutherans who, who, who resisted the Nazis, just because they were correct about that doesn't mean that they're correct about everything. And sometimes it's interesting how we prioritize the correctness. For instance, in our day and time, Luther could be roundly condemned and said, well, he wrote that, that essay on the Jews and their lies, and so therefore we just should just toss Luther aside. That's kind of what we do with historical figures these days, right? If they have socially unacceptable views like racism, racism is a very socially unacceptable view. It's a, it's a biblically unacceptable view. Uh, uh, but uh, it doesn't matter that Luther had all this theology that was correct and good and clarifying and put, put, the, put the Protestant church on the, on the right path for understanding the gospel, uh, that, that salvation was uh, through grace alone, the, the doctrine of justification. That doesn't matter. What really matters is that Luther was racist, so we should throw him out. I used to believe this. I used to think this back when I was at Claremont. I didn't like Luther because uh, because he wrote the Jew on the Jews and their lies. I thought it was more important that he be socially uh, correct or he'd be more correct on this issue than it was for him to be theologically correct. And that's that is a that's not a good way to go. The theology is important too, folks. So with with Zasa, uh, what we're going to see from Dr. Mazes is theology is a little shaky. Uh, maybe little is is being generous. He, his theology is quite shaky, and we're we're going to see that, especially when it comes to the historicity of Genesis one through three. But that doesn't mean we should discount him completely because he was heroic in the fact that he resisted the Nazis. Okay, I think we're going to let's go to Maze two right there, Isaac. This, when God spoke to man, was the beginning of humanity in a theological sense. And then finally in this section, he postulates what prehistoric religion may have been like. So diving into this a little bit now. Just as the length of the creation days was never a dogma in the early church and middle ages, according to Zasa, so also the age of the earth was never a dogma. Due to the differing chronologies of the Masoretic Hebrew text of the Old Testament and the Septuagint Greek translation, such a firm and certain date was impossible. According to Zasa, ancient genealogies, including those in the Bible, were never meant to be understood literally. They're part of a genre. Therefore, the dates of the biblical genealogies are not really historical. Genealogies are rather a literary genre that allowed authorial freedom. 
This then allows Zasa the possibility of accepting modern views of the world and not being encumbered by the genealogies in the scriptures. Here Zasa does not only argue that one may accept an evolutionary view of the world, but that one must. Just as the church had to accept the truth of the Copernican heliocentric solar system, so also it must accept what prehistoric research and paleontology sets forth as fact. He says, one must have this cosmos with its expanse and millions of light years before his eyes in order rightly to evaluate the expanse of the history of humanity. Just as the church and her theology must accept the facts divulged by astronomy and astrophysics, so it stands also with the facts placed before us by prehistoric research and paleontology. We are speaking about facts, not about theories and hypotheses which have been proposed to explain these facts. So you see Zasa is repeating, is proceeding really from the worldview or the foundation. Now, this is what's confusing about, about Zasa is he should be proceeding from a Christian worldview. However, what do you what do you the really what he's trying to proceed from is this is this synthesization, synthesizing, that's, a, that's the word I'm looking for, <laughs> synthesizing of science and the scripture, starting with what he has determined to be scientific fact. Now notice carefully, and Dr. Mays is on top of this already, again, you can see it in the whole lecture, notice what Zasa deems to be scientific fact. He puts evolution on the same plane as the heliocentric universe, as scientific fact. Now, what's the problem with that? This should be obvious. It should be obvious that a heliocentric universe doesn't defy Holy Scripture or any theological tenet at all. The reason the early the, the medieval church got up in arms about this sort of thing is because the Pope had interpreted Holy Scripture to say that the universe revolved around the earth. He, he interpreted that really from... Uh, you know, from the, the sun being stood still, Dr. Mays talks about this again. So it's this idea that the sun was going around the earth and God stood the sun still, see? So therefore, we can deduce from Holy Scripture that, um, that the sun revolves around the earth. And then, of course, Galileo and Copernicus, they come along and, we, and they visually verify that, nope, that's not the case. The earth is actually revolving around the sun. Now we can talk about how that doesn't contradict that passage in scripture where the sun stands still so Israel can fight on. But it doesn't it, even if we have a problem there, it doesn't violate any major theological tenets of holy scripture. So we can accept we could say, "Oh, oh, okay, well we were we were just wrong about that. We thought you know, maybe because Joshua says this is what's going on. The sun's going around the earth because God stood it still so that the people, the men of Israel could continue to fight. Well, we're just wrong about that. And maybe we're, mis maybe we're misunderstanding scripture. And that's really where Zasa is going in a lot of ways, just to give him the benefit of the doubt, is he's saying, okay, scientific fact is coming in and it's contradicting our, our assumptions about the universe and maybe we've misinterpreted Holy Scripture. The problem is, is you're going to have a, he's going to have a very difficult time explaining some things as he goes on here. 
the first move, in my humble opinion, should be is if we see something that appears contradictory in scientific quote-unquote fact and Holy Scripture, what we should question most thoroughly first is the science. We should question that first. And there's some men out there doing that, doing a great job of questioning the science on this. We, the, the, because the problem with it is, is that the understanding of having an historical Genesis 1 through 3, an historical Adam, is so critical to the gospel. And I'm going to explain more about that later. And Dr. Mays goes into that as well in the lecture, but I'll talk more about that later. Um, it, it is so critical that we have an, an historical Adam for for some major theological tenets, none the least of which are, are Christ himself and original sin. Those are two biggies. If we don't have an historical Adam, we can't figure out where the historical Adam came from. we got a big problem. Um, we've got Now we've got to look into the science because we are pretty sure we're squared away on how we understand Genesis 1 through 3. So we need to take a hard look at the science, and that's a great idea. And like I said at the outset, here's a couple of guys that have done that. One's an astrophysicist, Dr. Jason Lyle. And he's going to talk about. You heard Dr. Mays mention um, distant starlight. How did the you know how did the starlight get to us from so far away so quickly? That's a big question, major question. That's why some Christians will like Hugh Ross. He's he's an astrophysicist as well, and he does not adhere to a young Earth creation for that very reason because he cannot, in good conscience, as a scientist, explain the fact that we have starlight that appears to have traveled over trillions of years to get to us in a young earth or young universe scenario. But here's somebody with some pretty good wit who is coming from the Christian worldview. Again, it is important It is important to Dr. Lyle that he stay committed to the Christian worldview. That is his, that is his priority. And so therefore he's saying, look, I cannot stay committed to the Christian worldview and abandon this the view of Genesis 1 through 3 as historical. I cannot do it. If I do that, that is going to start to that is going to crumble the foundation of my commitment to the Christian worldview. So I've got to go take a hard look at science and see what's going on here. And what did he do? He went and got a PhD in astrophys astrophysics from uh, Colorado University. He is quite properly a rocket scientist now, so he's not stupid, but he is committed to the Christian worldview, and this is where he takes the science. This is what he starts to think about. Isaac, let's play uh, Jason, uh, Dr. Lyle talking a little bit about uh, the speed of light. You'll find. I think it has to do with what we call the one-way speed of light and what we call synchrony conventions. Now, this is going to get a little deep, but then the, the next session will be easy, I promise. It'll be a lot easier. So stay with me, and I'll try to explain this briefly in my remaining five minutes. Cheaper socks. Okay. Um, so the, the speed of light, 186,282 miles per second, but that is a round-trip time-averaged speed, meaning the way we measure, the way we get that number is by doing a round-trip experiment. So what I could do, for example, is I could stand over here with my flashlight and a clock, okay? And then we'll build a long hallway. We'll, we'll build it 186,282 miles long. We'll pretend we have government funding. We can waste it that way. And, uh, and we'll put a mirror at the other end of it, okay? And what I'll do is I'll shine the flashlight. I'll just, I'll, right at noon, right when my clock strikes noon, I'll turn, I'll turn on the flashlight for just an instant. The light will zip down that hallway, bounce off the mirror, and return back to me. And then when I see the light, when I see the reflection, I look at the clock. If I did that, it would take two seconds 
for me to see the reflection, amazingly. We tend to think of a reflection in a mirror as instantaneous, and it, it almost is, but not quite. It's, there's a slight delay. And so if I did that experiment, it would take two seconds for the light to travel that distance twice. So 186,082 times two divided by two, and you get the average speed of light is 186,282 miles per second, pretty fast, okay? Now, most people assume that it took light one second to go out and one second to come back. And I couldn't blame you for assuming that because I depicted it that way in my little illustration, right? But the fact is, if I'm standing over here watching the reflection, I don't actually know when it hit the mirror. All I know is when I see the... I know when it started because I know when I hit the flashlight. I know it started at noon. And I know I see the reflection two seconds later. But I don't actually know that it took one second to hit the mirror, do I? Hypothetically, it could be the case that it took no time to hit the mirror. Maybe it took zero to hit the mirror and then it traveled back and it took all two seconds to come back. Now you see, because I'm standing here, I would see the same thing, wouldn't I? I I send out the light at noon and I see the light two seconds later. I don't know that it took one second to go out and one second to come back. Could have taken zero seconds to go out and two seconds to come back. Or it could be the reverse. It could have taken all two seconds to go out and no time to come back. That's possible as well, isn't it? People say, well, why would it be different? I don't know, but the point is, I don't know that it's the same. And in science, you're not supposed to assume more than you really have to in order to be able to do science. And so I can't just assume that it's the same in both directions, because wouldn't that be nice? Uh, in fact, if, it's this, if, if this is the correct scenario, if light, when it's moving toward an observer, may, maybe just due to the nature of the universe or due to the nature of light, for whatever reason, if light, when it's moving toward you, takes no time, then you know what that means? It means there's no starlight problem because the light from the galaxies would be here instantaneously. The only thing we know is that a round trip speed takes time. But you don't have to get light out to the galaxies. It just has to go one way. So I'm kind of hoping that this is the answer. But of course, hoping for something doesn't make it so. Uh, And so we need to do an experiment to measure what is the one-way speed of light. To measure the speed of light in one direction, I can't use a mirror anymore because I'm just on a one-way trip. I'm now going to need a second clock. I'm going to need one clock at my location to record when the light was emitted, and then another clock at the receiving end to record when the light arrived. Okay, that makes sense, right? I did this experiment in my office. I, have, I don't have a long hallway, but I'm pretty good at math. I can convert, right? So I have, I have the distance between my watch, and there's a clock on my phone, and, I, and it's about five feet, and so I can, I can, I can do the math. And so when my, when my watch struck noon, I turned on the flashlight, and the light went and hit the phone. And I, what I did is I, I read the time as soon as the phone was illuminated. And it said 12.05. And so I said, ah, light takes five minutes. To, it did feel like it. It felt like it was instantaneous. But apparently light takes five minutes to travel from my watch to the phone. Is that right? That's not right, is it? Now that really happened. It is true that when my watch said noon, I turned on the flashlight. And when the phone was illuminated, it said 12.05. But it didn't really take five minutes to get there, did it? The fact is... The, the, the clock on my phone is five minutes fast relative to my watch. You see what I'm saying? And so you can see, obviously, this is only going to work if these clocks are synchronized, if they read the same time at the same time, right? You say, well, that, that's pretty obvious. Well, we just need to make sure the clocks are synchronized. Then we know how to do that because we've seen all those old spy movies where let's get together and synchronize our watches, right? We know how to synchronize clocks. It turns out that... Um, This is hard to do when those clocks are separated by a distance. And in fact, it's not good enough for them to be approximately synchronized. They have to be exactly synchronized. 
Why? Because if this clock is one second fast or one second slow, it'll make the difference between the speed of light being 186, 282 divided by two or infinity. There's Dr. Jason Lyle. Again, he got his uh, PhD from Colorado University. And what, he, what he's talking about there is, is Einstein's theories on, on light. This is not him making something up to make it fit with the Bible. This is what the scientific data presents us with. We do not, we can't, what he's going toward there, and I would encourage you to go to Rumble, just look up Dr. Jason Lyle, and some of his videos will come up, and you can see this one in full, and it'll make the full explanation. I didn't want to play the entire thing here. But what, he, but what he's saying is, is that we cannot calculate uh, the one-way speed of light. We can only calculate a round trip, uh, the speed of light in a round trip because of these reasons. We can't we can't synchronize clocks because if you if the clocks are off uh, at all they can't be off at all they have to be perfectly synchronized you you cannot do an accurate calculation so even bringing the clocks together and synchronizing them and then moving them apart guess what happens when you move a clock it very slightly almost imperceptibly slows down they've proven this scientifically that time is a thing that that slows down and the clock quite properly will slow down it will keep the time it's built to keep that it's it's kind of magical almost it's really hard to explain or get your mind around but they put a clock in a plane and flew it around the world and found out that it slowed down very imperceptible amount of time but it slowed down because it was traveling. So when you move, when you synchronize clocks in one location and you move them apart, one of the clocks, the clock that you move is going to slow down. So now they're not synchronized. And you say, okay, well, and then Dr. Lyle brings up this idea of a radio tower. When if we, you know, emit the, um, the signal from a radio tower, well, the radio tower travels at the speed of light. So you can't do it that way. So there, it's, what he's saying is it's impossible to calculate the speed of light in one direction. And what he says, or what he the, the theory he's going to posit, and he can't prove this, he can't prove it, but it would make sense, it would, it would comport with the witness of Holy Scripture that light traveling toward us travels instantaneously. So when God said, let there be light, it was there. And that's, that's exactly what it says. And, and I would encourage you to go watch that video. But, but the point being there, that this is Dr. Lyle taking his worldview and saying, mm, this seems to, this, these seem to conflict. Let me study this. Let me dedicate my life to studying this and see if I can figure it out. Here's another man that does the same thing, Dr. Stephen Meyer. Now he he doesn't get he is his goal is to talk about intelligent design. That's what he wants everybody to get on just the possibility of there being intelligent design. Because right now, as many uh, as all of us Christians know, and if you're if you're not a Christian, you know this as well, they don't teach anything about intelligent design in school. And that's not great because it is a very real scientific possibility. I wonder what kind of agendas are behind that. Hmm, let me think. <laughs> the point being, uh, Dr. Stephen Meyer of the Discovery Institute, and you can catch his videos, just do a search for the Discovery Institute, and they've got their videos on there. Again, we're moving away from, I forgot to mention, we're moving away from, from YouTube and Facebook, and we're moving to Substack. Um, we, uh, we would encourage you not to go to YouTube, so go, to, go straight to the Discovery Institute's website they've got all their videos up there you can see as well uh but this is this is dr stephen meyer talking about uh evolution and some of the problems with evolutionary theory let's take a look at that isaac 
And I think it's good for us to get clear on these different meanings of evolution. I've had a few side conversations at the conference with folks just to say, okay, what uh, evolution can mean different things. Which meaning of evolution is, for example, the theory of intelligent design challenging? Which meanings are consistent with it? And I think this is important just to get clear on, on, on Darwin's ideas too. Darwin accepted change over time, but lots of people accept change over time who are not Darwinists. Okay, that wasn't what was unique about his theory. Because change over time can simply be the observation that um, life is different now than it was a long time ago as recorded by the fossil record. You know, we, we do not have dinosaurs roaming around uh, the streets of Philadelphia. As much as I wanted that to be true when I was four years old, it's just... <laughs> It's not happening. We don't have trilobites anymore. So something has changed. That kind of, and, and the Cambrian explosion was not inconsistent with that meaning of evolution. In fact, the, the evidence of the Cambrian explosion was documenting that life was different then than it is now. So that kind of evolution um, was, is not what's challenged by this. Instead, the Cambrian explosion challenged the two main propositions of Darwinian evolution the two main distinctive ideas that Darwin was putting forward. And, this is, and I, I label them evolution number two and evolution number three because they're both called evolution. But these are different meanings than just change over time. The, the, the first of those meanings was Darwin's idea of universal common ancestry or universal common descent. And that's the idea that all of the living forms that exist today are related by common ancestry. They have descended gradually from simpler pre-existing forms of life so that, such that the history of life forms a great branching tree. And that was his, his, his theory of the history of life was, was, was depicted with this tree-like diagram. So the idea is that all organisms come from a single common ancestor way, way back, probably a simple one-celled organism of some kind, and that the, the best picture of the history of life is this tree, such that all of the forms of life that exist today, the giraffes and the kangaroos and the tropical fish and the tur turtles and anything you would like to name, the insects in your backyard, are all related to each other by a pattern of descent. That they, they share common ancestry if you go far enough back. Okay? Now, inherent in this picture is the idea of gradual and continuous change. Evolution in its simplest meaning just means change over time. But Darwin was stipulating that the change that had taken place from those earlier strata where we could see that life was different was continuous, that everything was in some way connected, and that that change had taken place gradually. So the Cambrian explosion is right out of the blocks, a challenge to that part of Darwinian theory, that meaning of evolution, because it seems to be documenting not, not gradual, continuous change, but rather sudden, discontinuous change. Okay? And Darwin was troubled by this. And understandably so. Now the second meaning, or the, th rather, sorry, third meaning of evolution, second distinctive proposition of Darwin's theory, is his idea about the mode of change, about what we call in biology the mechanism. And the mechanism that he proposed was the mechanism of natural selection acting on random variations. He didn't know about mutations yet. Modern neo-Darwinists would, would emphasize the importance of mutations as a particular kind of variation. But we've, we've talked about natural selection quite a bit at the conference, but this was his idea about how things had changed over time. This was how the change occurred. And it the natural selection mechanism, because the variations, he thought, had to be small, lest they have deleterious consequences, 
the mechanism, the mechanism must, in Darwin's view, work very slowly and gradually. So the mechanism of natural selection acting on small incremental variations, changes in the next generation, time after time, uh, implied that the history of life should show this gradual continuous pattern, the branching tree. The mechanism, the process and the pattern are related in Darwinian theory because the mechanism must work slowly and incrementally and gradually the pattern of change in the history of life should be continuous and gradual as well. Okay? And so, when confronted with the evidence of the Cambrian explosion, there was a second reason to question his theory. Because it challenged the mechanism that he envisioned as being responsible for the origin of form in the history of life. So the Cambrian explosion, in brief, challenged both his ideas about the historical picture of life, this gradual unfolding, and also his ideas about the mechanism by which that unfolding took place. So there's a couple of folks who uh, are coming from the Christian worldview. Uh, Dr. Meyer and Dr. Lyra are both Christians, and they went the opposite route that our theologian Herman Zaza went, and they said, okay, there's a problem here. Let's study this. So let's scrutinize the science here because this is really important. We, we, are, we are committed to this claim that God created the universe, that not only God created the universe, but he got, God created Adam and Eve. And in fact, uh, Adam is called the first man and Christ is called the, the last man by St. Paul. So there's some problems there with that. Theologically, let's, let's get ourselves committed to the science study the science, scrutinize the science, and see if, if there aren't some holes in it. And Dr. Lyle and Dr. Meyer both have discovered, yeah, there's some problems here. This, this isn't uh, a slam dunk, lock tight fact like a heliocentric universe that we can that we can prove beyond all reasonable doubt. We don't have a theory, shall we say, of a heliocentric universe. And again, scientific theory only stands so far as it is to be disproven. And the theory of evolution stands right now because in the, the scientific consensus and the opinions of the scientists, the data that they've received, there's nothing they've received that has refuted the theory of evolution. So the theory stands so far. However, somebody like Dr. Meyer and, and Dr. Lyle, for that matter, are both challenging that theory. And that's what science does. They challenge theories. They try to tear down theories. What's interesting is, is that hardly it's... Very difficult to work in science. Uh, if you go watch one of uh, one of the films that, that Dr. Meyer is in, it's called uh, uh, Expelled. It's with uh, uh, what's his name from Ferris Bueller, you know Bueller, Bueller, that actor. Anyway, he does this whole documentary on how scientists are expelled from scientific programs for even thinking about intelligent design. It's pretty, it's pretty radical uh, and interesting that that uh, everybody seems to be so nervous uh, about putting forth intelligent design. But I'd rather have seen Sasa go to. University of Colorado and get a, did a get a degree in astrophysics instead of try to conform a some basic fundamental tenets of Christian theology. Try to to fuse that with what he saw as quote scientific fact, which in fact is not scientific fact quite yet. Okay, we want to pick up with Dr. Mays as well. Let's go back there. This, when God spoke to man, was the. Here it is clear that Zasa sees a necessary connection between the astronomical distance of stars as measured in light years and the age of the created universe. 
as if one could calculate the latest possible date of creation by finding the distance to the most distant visible star, as if God could not create stars with their light already reaching us on Earth, or as if the laws of physics in the beginning of creation must be the same as we now experience in the world. Also, it is clear here that Zasa accepts the the findings of these disciplines, including paleontology, as including facts that necessitate a figurative reading of Genesis 1 to 3. So what controls his exegesis of scripture in this case lies outside of scripture. So this is the exact points I was making, the exact points Dr. Lyle was making with the the speed of light. Dr. Mays is on his game here. I'm 100% with him. And again, he is calling Zasa out on this idea of him trying to harmonize scripture with science that where it's not necessary. We're, we're not there yet. He's calling scientific fact, uh, something, quote, scientific fact that is not, in fact, fact yet. <laughs> I guess if I can say it that way. Uh, and, and instead of just sticking with the theology, because, again, we're not talking about something like a passage from Joshua. That's, that's, uh, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about fundamental Christian theology at stake here. And so, again, we would rather have seen Zaza go get a degree in the philosophy of science somewhere from Cambridge, like Dr. Meyer did, rather than do what he's doing here. Okay, let's get the last clip in from Dr. Mays, and we'll wrap it up here. So how does the creation of man in the image of God, then, fit with the evolutionary idea of constantly developing organisms that go from less to more complex through survival of the fittest? He previously touched on this in the section on the fall into sin, but now he touches on it again. How is it possible for man to develop by evolution gradually from lower life forms, and yet at some point, man is present as created by God? In a section that seems to be at odds with his previous section on the fall into sin, Zasa explains his view of evolutionary creation. He says that while the oldest written records go back to about 3000 BC, Humanity actually appeared on earth hundreds of thousands of years prior to this. He writes, Whatever the natural scientific anthropology may consider to be the beginning of man, in distinction from the pre-human creation, such as inventing and using tools or mastering fire, man in the theological sense begins with the address of God, who calls him into being as his image and as his representative in the mastery of the earthly creation. For Zasa, this is the truth that lies behind the figurative speech of Genesis 1 to 2. Interesting here is that Zasa really cannot point to any created biological difference between man in the theological sense and pre-human creatures. According to Zasa's model, Homo sapiens could have existed for thousands of years before God spoke to them for the first time. This then raises unanswerable hypothetical questions about the salvation theological status of such human beings. Also, apparently, the linguistic aspect of humanity has become so central to Zasa's view of the image of God that without linguistic ability, it is difficult to conceive of humanity being in the image of God. What then should be decided about infants and those developmentally disabled people who lack linguistic ability? In any case, it is clear that none of this can be derived from Genesis 1 to 3. 
Zasa has set aside the literal meaning of the creation account and substituted a different myth for it. In this new evolutionary myth, the biblical act of creation has been changed to the evolutionary act of transformation. This gets very messy for Zasa. That's, I think, a decent summary of what Dr. Mahiz is trying to say here. Theologically, gets very dicey. So, again, maybe maybe y'all saw my, my Substack blog this week. It's basically why are we afraid to say because God said because God said so why do why are we afraid to tell ourselves even that the reason we believe something or the reason we obey holy scripture is simply because God said so we might not understand it but the God almighty we agree that the God almighty of the universe said it why wouldn't we believe it anyway we have to have our own reasons don't we well that's kind of the the whole idea here is that instead of taking what God says at face value and believing it because he is God Almighty of the universe and only when uh, it's absolutely necessary to perhaps harmonize something that we do it. Uh, in this case, it's, it's impossible to do. You cannot harmonize Gen- Genesis 1 through 3 with an evolutionary mindset. It just can't be done. And that's what you see Zasa struggling with, and that's exactly what Dr. Mays is pointing out. You have to make this completely out of up out of whole cloth, is what is what Dr. Mays points out. There's nothing in the text about it. Um, if there's no historical Adam, there's no fall into sin. Is sin therefore a metaphor? If Adam is a metaphor for all of humanity, is his fall into sin a metaphor? And therefore, if there's no historical Adam. There's really no historical Christ. There's no need for one. Because Christ, the Savior of of us from our sin, then can easily become a metaphor. You can see how those Christians who bought hook, line, and sinker into the evolutionary model and made up this new myth, as Dr. Mays pointed out, fell quickly into theological uh, disrepute uh, as churches in the United States. Is the image of God a metaphor? There's so many fundamental questions here. When you don't have an historical Adam, and to have an historical Adam, you've got to have an historical Genesis one through three. I see, I've seen people try to slice and dice that that part of it. So, the point being, we need more study on the science because right now the science is not jiving with our theology, and the theology takes the magisterial position: scripture, then reason, then emotion. All right. Got to wrap it up for this week. Don't forget, folks, we are moving off of Facebook and YouTube. We are going to post there for a little longer. I'll continue to send out harsh messages encouraging you to get off of Facebook and come to our Substack. Thank you to all of you who have already come over to Substack. Many of you have already come over. We're very happy about that. Glad to see the response there. And keep doing it. Let's, let's, Let's bag Facebook and YouTube. We're going to move our videos to Rumble starting here pretty soon. We'll keep making these announcements and move you all over there. And we hope to see you over there and get your feedback and continue to go on this journey together to learn about religion, philosophy, and apologetics. And uh, we'll see you over at Substack, and we'll see you next week.